This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And as I looked up from my phone, the, the terrorist was driving an SUV, like a 4x4, and it was coming straight towards me. And I realized as I was in midair that I'd essentially been flipped over. I think things happen for a reason, whether it's fate or whatever you want to call it. Some people were shouting that someone had gone over, someone's in the Thames. Hello, you are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me as we get to know our guest. Travis, how did your morning start out on the 22nd of March 2017? So we were we were up really early, actually, which um, was quite frustrating for someone who'd been out drinking the night before. I think we had to be in Parliament at that sort of general area for about half seven in the morning, the latest. So we were pretty early and we had a jam-packed day full of um, you know, all sorts of activities and, and meetings. It was the the politics side of my course that I was on this trip with. And um, as I say, I was, you know, studying at university at the time. So all of the activities we were doing were very sort of politics related. You said you were at uni as well. I was, yeah. I was in, uh, I, at the time I was in my first year of, uh, of studies and I was studying history with politics. And it was with the politics side of the course that, uh, that the trip took place and was organised by. So a lot of the activities we had sort of planned during the day um, were all sort of like meetings with MPs. We had a lunch with a lord. Uh, we met with sort of, you know, staffers who worked for MPs. We had a tour of Parliament as well. So lots of sort of different bits and bobs like that, really. We were hoping to make the most of it because we'd actually made it down late on the first day and missed all the activities we had planned. We got stuck in traffic on the motorway, which, you know, is not to be surprised by, is it? And what were the events that followed from here on out, Travis? Because you were travelling with, I'm assuming, a group of your uni friends, yeah, so so we were in a group of about 16 of us, uh, including one lecturer. Got to the afternoon, it was about two o'clock-ish in the afternoon, we had a meeting with our local MP. And then about halfway through the meeting, it was an hour-long meeting, halfway through it, she got called off to go and vote on some sort of emergency measure. And that meant that we were left with half an hour spare time, you see. So, you know, we wanted to, to sort of split up and do our own thing for half an hour, but we didn't really have enough time to, to do any proper sightseeing because, of course, we could leave Parliament, but we'd have to get back in through the security and things. And taking into account how long that's going to take, it's not actually that long half an hour. So one part of the group, we sort of split into three different groups. One part of the group went to the House Commons Cafe, just decided to get a coffee and, you know, sort of relax and, and just hang around to the next meeting. Another group went off, I think, did a bit of shopping. And then myself and about four of the lads just decided, really, I think, just to get a bit of fresh air. Didn't really put much thought into it at the time. Um, you know, probably 
Thought we'd try and get a bit of sightseeing done as well. But again, we knew we couldn't really go far. So we left Parliament sort of through the main gate. And then we sort of took a right walking past Big Ben. And it was walking past Big Ben that I took a picture, actually, and sent it to a friend back home. And they were asking me, you know, why I was down in London. For those that I, I might not have already mentioned it, I'm from Lancashire, you see. So it was quite a quite a distance. Um, and this was, I think, the only the second time I'd ever been in London. So naturally, when I sent that photo to them, they were sort of asking, you know, what I was up to and wanted to sort of know why I was down there. And I was still texting them when we got about a third of the way along Westminster Bridge, which is just next to Big Ben. And as I say, about a third of the way along, still texting my friend. And one of the lads in my group just sort of shouted something along the lines of look out. Can't remember exactly what he said, but obviously, you know, things were happening that quickly uh, that it's understandable, perhaps. And he shouted, you know, sort of Travis, look out or look out. And as I looked up from my phone, the, the terrorist was driving an SUV, like a four by four. And it was coming straight towards me. Now, at that moment, it could have only been a meter or two away from me at most. And the police reckon afterwards when they did the sort of um, piece together all the evidence statements and things that they reckon he was going about 46 miles an hour at that point when he hit us. But at points on the bridge, he did, they reckon, get up to about 70 miles an hour, which is pretty incredible for such a short amount of time and short amount of space. But as I say, about 46 miles an hour coming straight towards me, simply didn't have time to react. And of course, you know, people ask me about that afterwards and they, they say, well, could you not have jumped out of the way? Could you not have done this and that? And hindsight's a beautiful thing, but um, it was literally less than a split second of looking up from my phone and seeing the car coming towards me. And then it hits us. The tourist who'd come to see the mother of parliaments ended up running away from it. Their panic explained by the sound of gunshots. It was the moment the Westminster terrorist was shot dead. One man, a car and a knife, an astonishingly unsophisticated attack on the public, police and the centre of power. The injuries we sustained were based primarily upon where we were stood on the pavement. So because I was stood on the side of the pavement closest to the road, I ended up taking the brunt of the impact. I was thrown over the bonnet of the car, uh, hit the windshield, and then was thrown into the air. And I was in the air for what felt like, you know, emphasise here, felt like, because it could only have been a second or two if that. It felt like forever. And I realised as I was in midair that I'd essentially been flipped over, you know, sort of 360, because we were walking away from Parliament, and now all I could sort of see out of the corner of my eye was the Big Ben and just the sky above me. And as I say, it felt like I was up there forever. Of course, everything was sort of going in slow motion. And then I landed back down on the concrete. And it was that landing on the concrete that caused most of my injuries, actually. The doctors were pretty clear afterwards when I spoke to them that the only reason I survived, however, was because when I landed back down on the concrete, one of the lads in my group who'd already sort of received a glancing blow from the car, um, the winger had hit him in the head. He was already led down on the floor. And as I came back down to the concrete, my head landed on his stomach and was cushioned, whereas every other part of my body that hit the ground was fractured. And that was a pretty clear, um, you know, as far as they were concerned, pretty clear indication that had my head hit the floor with the same amount of strength and force, um, you know, it would have been a fractured skull. And if not death straight away, then within a few minutes afterwards. Now, because my head landed on his stomach, I actually didn't lose consciousness. And immediately after being hit by the car and landed on the on the floor, I got up and I started walking around. Unbeknownst, of course, to the injuries I've sustained, I stood up. I remember sort of being in a bit of an autopilot mode where, sounds ridiculous in hindsight, but all I could think about at the time was collecting my phone because, of course, it had been in my hand 
you know, just a split second earlier when I'd been hit by the car and B, collecting my shoes because the force of the car hitting me had literally thrown them off my feet. So I started walking up and down, you know, the sort of five or 10 meters near my my group on the bridge that up and down the length of the bridge and obviously saw, you know, the range of sort of fatalities and, and, and injuries that have been sustained, collecting my shoes, collecting my phone. And, you know, I always joke with people that it's a bit ridiculous with the, these phones because drop them on the floor and they smash into a million pieces. And I got hit by a car and there wasn't a single scratch on it. So maybe maybe that's an advert for Apple, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, um, I've collected my phone, collected my shoes, and I got back to my group. And it was at this point that we realized that one of the lads in my group was actually missing. We we had no idea where, where he'd gone. Of course, we could only assume the worst in a situation like this. Some people were shouting that someone had gone over, someone's in the Thames. We looked over the side, we couldn't see anyone, we couldn't see him or anyone else for that matter. So sadly, someone had been thrown over and did drown and die. But we did not know where he'd gone at this time. Now, fortunately, he had survived and he just got separated from us in the chaos. But of course, we simply didn't know that at the time. A, f- a few things were going through my mind at this point. One, I wanted to ring the guys who were still in Parliament um, to try and warn them. Of course, by this point, the attack had probably already finished, but I didn't know that at the time. So I started ringing them, trying to explain to them what was happening. Of course, they thought I was taking the mick, um, because if anyone rings you about this and, and sort of says something's coming your way, I think it could be a terror attack or something. For the most part, people are going to think you're taking the mick. After ringing them, it became pretty clear the attack essentially had come to an end, or at least this section, because gunshots were ringing out in Parliament as the police had shot and killed the terrorists. As you know, we've declared this as a terrorist incident and the Counterterrorism Command are carrying out a full-scale investigation into the events today. Sadly, I can confirm that now four people have died. That includes the police officer who was protecting Parliament and one man we believe to be the attacker who was shot by a police firearms officer. The stabbing and shooting were just part of this horrifying event. On Westminster Bridge, there is a trail of carnage a car has mounted the pavement, deliberately mowing down pedestrians as it headed for the Houses of Parliament. One of the the policemen then ran to get help, which was very, very quick to come. The injured are scattered where they were knocked down. There are multiple casualties. Because after hitting us with his car and everyone else on the bridge, he'd crashed into Parliament, got out on foot with knives and attacked a police officer before being shot dead. Pretty soon after that as well, I rang my mum. I just thought, you know, I just thought, well, I'm going to let her know I'm okay, something's happened. Uh, in hindsight, an incredibly good thing for me to do because the media found out pretty soon afterwards. I don't know how they found my name. They found, um, you know, my sort of details and things. And and naturally, um, you know, a lot of people were relaying that information to her. Um, so I was very lucky that actually I rang her pretty much straight afterwards and just said, listen, something's happened, but I think I'm okay. And the emphasis there is on think, because I still wasn't aware at this point of the injuries I sustained. If I was in pain, that couldn't be denied. But obviously the adrenaline and the shock of it, I just wasn't really feeling it. The other lad that I'd landed on, he had quite a bad, uh, a bad laceration to his forehead from the uh, the wing mirror hitting him. And uh, we were trying to stem the bleeding because, you know, the, the sort of blood it was bleeding quite heavily and it was running into his eyes and things. And so I, I tried taking my coat off and I took it over my, you know, my right hand side, perfectly fine. I went to take it over the left hand side and for the life of me, I couldn't get it off. And I, I was just getting really frustrated. And I looked down and I realized that the, um, the context, the cuffs on my, my coat were elasticated and I couldn't get them over my hand. And I looked down at my left hand and each of the fingers, apart from the thumb itself, 
were all fractured and, and bent and twisted in different directions. And uh, and the hand itself was, was fractured as well. So it's quite a grisly injury and that was quite a visible injury. But beyond that, I, I simply wasn't aware of, you know, the injury that sustained at this point. Pretty soon after this, I mean, we're talking sort of 10, 15 minutes after the car had hit us. The adrenaline has started to run out at this point. And I couldn't really tell you, and I certainly couldn't tell you at the time what injuries I had, but I, f- I just felt this overwhelming need to lie down and sort of stay down, you know, and, and actually take a rest. In many ways, it sort of felt like, you know, when you get up from a churn, the blood goes rushing to your head a bit too quick. It was like that. And I just knew I had to lie down. And I lied down with my back against the parapet of the bridge. And unfortunately, there are much more paramedics arriving at this point and, and, and police officers, of course, and fire as well. They were able to walk my friends to the nearby St. Thomas Hospital um, because they were the injuries they sustained weren't preventing them from walking. So they were taken over there uh, and began to be treated, whereas I had, at this point, I had to wait for a uh, stretcher because we knew that whatever injury I had was preventing me from getting up and walking. And it was at this point that the, the doctors with me realised, actually, and again, of course, I don't really have a recollection of this, but having seen the, the court documents and things, I'd started to go into shock and I started shaking and they realised I had some sort of bleed somewhere. And they started to cut my claws off and they found uh, this laceration, a sort of cut from, they think, in many ways, a bit like a shrapnel wound from the glass of the car, uh, the car's windshield. And it had cut the top of my left thigh and had just missed the artery by about an inch or two. So, of course, it was bleeding really badly, but nowhere near as badly as it could have been. So, again, emphasis on being lucky. And pretty soon after this, I was, you know, sort of bunged up with lots of drugs and stuff and, and painkillers, put in the back of an ambulance and taken to hospital. And I got to King's College Hospital about 25, 30 minutes after, after the initial attack had happened. And I remember when I arrived, the doctor just said to me, um, just lie there and let us do our job. And that's exactly what I did. And for the next, probably going on 10 hours, um, I had all sorts of examinations and, and CT scans, uh, x-rays, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially, they, they, they found that I'd also fractured my left leg in two places, which if you think about the fact that I was walking immediately after I'd been hit by the, the car, it's pretty remarkable, actually. And it just shows the sort of power of adrenaline. Now, one of the fractures was pretty minor, and it could be sort of repaired just by sticking it in a cast, but the other one had actually tore a ligament, um, and that would need metal work doing. So I had my first operation that first day that was on the hand, because in addition to, as I mentioned earlier, in addition to actually breaking the finger, they were essentially sort of dislocated and moved out of place. So before they could be put in a cast, it had to be put back into position. So you can imagine, you know, that was one of, if not the most, painful thing I've ever experienced and oh God, yeah. I always I always joke with people that you know local anesthetic I'm convinced it's a bloody placebo because it never does a bloody thing oh uh, my goodness so they reset each finger put it in a cast and then a couple of days later um I had an operation on my left leg um to put metal work in and I was out of hospital in eight days and then of course began the long road uh to full recovery and all the sort of physio and things that came after it Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. 
but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I think things happen for a reason, whether it's theater, whatever you want to call it. This is just regular people, you know, who have no knowledge of terrorism, who are sucked into these sort of attacks. Within the first 12 hours after the attack happening, and that was from a guy who essentially said he was going to come and hang me for, for being a traitor and things like that. Some people will never want to remember, you know, that day again. I think you raised two questions that I was going to, going to ask you, Travis. One was, I think a lot of people think they would know what they would do in a situation like this. But you are here to sort of tell us the reality. And I guess people that do say to you, well, why didn't you move out of the way? First of all, you're in a situation you can never expect or control the situation you're going to be in. But also, I think it's really interesting that you talk about the power of adrenaline and shock. And we all think that we're going to go into this sort of fight or flight scenario. But you don't know how you're going to react until you're in that. The second thing I wanted to ask you was your friend, you know, you said just as this car was sort of hurtling towards you, your friend said, look out, move out of the way. At what moment did you realise and did your friends realise that you were in the middle of a terrorist attack? Because I'm assuming that you just thought that you were about to just get run over. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question, that, that second one, because maybe it's naivety, but I didn't think, at least for the first sort of, you know, 10, maybe 15 minutes after the attack had quite literally yeah. happened, I didn't think it was terrorism. I, my mind first went to sort of like a drunk driver, maybe losing control of the wheel yeah. or something. I mean, there were a few things that made it pretty clear that that wasn't the case pretty soon afterwards. And one, of course, was the fact that the car had carried on going. It didn't mm -hmm. just crash into the wall. It was very literally targeting people and it was swerving in onto and off the pavement uh, to target pedestrians and dodge other cars. This was a calculated act. And obviously I didn't know that at the time because I'd only seen in the sort of split second of it coming towards me. What I did sort of, you know, know at the time was, of course, the gunshots going off. That's no accident. You know, whether yeah. that's the terrorists shooting a gun or the police shooting a gun, there's something much bigger clearly going on here. And I think I remember one of the lads in my group, I can't remember which one it was, but one of the lads in my group straight away, without a doubt, said this is terrorism. And I couldn't tell you, you know, why he sort of thought that straight away, but it just shows that different people perceive these sort of things, you know, and think of them yeah. in different ways in that initial moment. How does being told by doctors or by a medical professional that had your friend not landed in the position that they were in and had your head not landed on their stomach or you know, had, did you say it was, it was shrapnel in your, in your leg? Or yeah, that's sort of what blast. they called it. Yeah. But it wasn't, they didn't have to go rooting around or anything to, you know, remove pieces. Yeah. How does being told that, you know, you were millimetres away from nicking an artery or if your head had landed in a different position, you would have been dead. How does hearing that from a doctor or a medical professional change your life? How, how does hearing that affect you? Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly think it gives you, you know, a renewed lease on life. I mean, I, I, in many yeah. ways, and you know, I don't want to be that guy, but I do think things happen for a reason. And I think whether it's fate or whatever you want to call it, maybe some, you know, I speak to some people and they think it's a sort of, it's a religious thing. And whatever your sort of take on this is, you know, I, I do think that there is, there has to be 
some sort of reason why you know I was sort of one inch to the left that day or one inch to the right um, and yeah. landed in such a position and because the reality is you know yes you know life is completely random but at the same time I think a lot of what we do is about trying to make meaning of it and certainly that for me has been sort of I guess the 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 catalyst of the past few years really because you know I, I spent the sort of first year or two after the attack just very aimless to be honest with you I didn't really know I was trying to work out in many ways I was trying to learn what had happened because you know I think people often forget that this is just regular people you know who have no knowledge of terrorism who are sucked into these sort of attacks um, and who were targeted in these attacks you know the amount of friends I had come up to me afterwards and asking me sort of about the attack why has this happened or you know wanted to know details and things and I didn't have the answers because Two seconds earlier, I wasn't an expert. And now all of a sudden, simply because you're in, you know, the wrong place at the wrong time, you're considered an expert. That first year or two after the attack for me was very much about sort of doing the research, trying to understand what had happened, but also, I guess, kind of like an internal journey as well, trying to process what had happened and and understand, you know, what role I wanted to play now, because I just felt... I did feel there was a lot of pressure to... Maybe it's a sort of perceived thing, not reality, but... A lot of pressure to just crack on as if nothing had happened and just maybe it's a British thing, like a stiff upper lip, you know, and, and just move on, carry on with your life. And I just felt that was wrong, to be honest with you. Uh, more power to those who can. But for me, I felt like I had a very sort of like unique perspective now. And, and in many ways, if it was going to help me to learn more about it, perhaps I could also help other people by sort of, you know, telling that story. And I think that first sort of year or two was really for me just a lot of thinking which obviously I had time for because I was in and out of physio for most of the first two years so I certainly wasn't doing as much physically so you know mentally there's a lot to sort of take in I think. This is something that I've only recently become aware of and I think I've seen that you've spoken on this before Travis but I, I just want I want to get your insight. I was watching I think it was a it was a panorama documentary that came out the end of last year maybe the beginning of this year and it was on these groups of people that are disaster trolls they're disaster deniers and this documentary and if any if anyone hasn't seen it definitely go and give it a watch there's these groups of people that harass terror attack victims you had experience with well you you have had experience with these sorts of people haven't you absolutely yeah i guess there's a couple of things here i mean right off the bat that that we think in many ways as a society are shocked to hear that this is happening it's pretty remarkable actually and I think it's you know we, we look at America and this has been happening for many years in America and why do we think we're immune to it and um, people like mm-hmm. Alec Jones who've been going out there and denying school shootings are happening and yeah. people who even deny the 9-11 attack happened or or sort of you know castigate it so I think that we're immune to that is quite naive actually but I do think that this is something that's you know, at least by comparison, the US is now doing something about this. There was a successful civil case against Alex Jones in particular. Over here, we're, we're not yet even accepting that it's a problem. And I think what worries me, you know, this this Panorama documentary came at a perfect time for me, actually, because I'd been sort of I'd experienced this a lot, particularly, you know, immediately after the attack. Tried talking about it but didn't really know if it was just me going through it and, and didn't really know sort of if other people had experienced it as well. So I sort of left it as is and, and just thought, well, if I don't respond to them, they'll give up after a while. And of course, over the years following that, I started getting more and more involved in, you know, like counter-radicalization and counter-terrorism and that sort of thing as a career. 
And in many ways, actually, much of what we see with these conspiracy theories, I think is, to be honest with you, I think is a form of radicalization. I think, you know, when we look at conspiracy theories and radicalization and the intersection between the two and the methods used to sort of draw people into these groups, they're one and the same. You know, we talk about sort of creating an other. In this case, it's, you know, it's us as sort of the bad guys, people who survived terror attacks. And that that makes them feel better about themselves because they're they can be contrarian. They can be, you know, different to everyone else because they know the truth, the apparent truth. That's not too dissimilar to radicalization in the way that they sort of separate that person from their community and then make it as though they're the one on a platform who who knows better than everyone else. And in many ways, I think. You know, if you look at people who've been radicalized and the different sort of ideologies out there, they're almost always underpinned by conspiracy theories. You know, you look at like the far right, for example, sort of like neo-Nazis and stuff. And a lot of what they talk about, about migration and sort of replacing white people and things like that, that's a conspiracy theory. So why is it that we're not treating these people who are targeting essentially vulnerable people who, by no fault of their own, have been in a terror attack? And now been the, the target for not just abuse, but for death threats and stuff. I mean, I, I one of the worst ones I got was within the first 12 hours after the attack happening. And that was from a guy who essentially said he was going to come and hang me for, for being a traitor and things like that. And I'd like to say I'm the only one, but actually every single victim I've spoken to has experienced this in some shape or form, whether it's just sort of coming across a tweet or a or a forum where people are, you know, sort of trying to track them down or criticizing their story to try and sort of prove that it's fake or whether it's the more insidious stuff, like I've just said, death threats, or in the case of that documentary that you're talking about there, you're from the Manchester attack who've been approached by these people in person who have been secretly recorded by them, you know, outside their own house. That's pretty scary stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, if someone is going to, it's one thing to sort of put something on a an online chat form or something to send abuse. I'm sure you've probably got some of it in your time as well. Everyone seems to get it and it's, it's awful, but it's almost accepted now as, as something that happens online, which is an issue in and of itself, but we'll leave that one for another day. But it's one step further when you're actually doing something about it and you're approaching people and you're recording them and things like that. That to me is where actually where the police would start stepping in if this was a radicalization case because it would show that they're beginning to act on their beliefs. So why are we not treating this with the same amount of seriousness? I find it really worrying, to be honest with you, especially because, as I said before, terrorism can affect any one of us. So actually, yes, at this moment in time, it's me and the other sort of survivors who are out there are putting up with these issues, but it could just as easily be you or anyone else listening to this. You know, and I think it's about setting a precedent that this is not acceptable, um, rather than just sort of brushing it under the rug. It's unbelievable that, as you said, it's... At a point of weakness when someone is so vulnerable after going through something so horrific you know not only are you going through the the fit the physical rehabilitation but i can imagine the mental rehabilitation for this is just awful it is it's such a long journey you you just cannot believe that someone not even someone a group of people a force of people would come and try and invalidate not only invalidate your experience it, it's just it's just it, it really it really did blow my mind so anyone that hasn't seen this documentary or doesn't know that these people exist because I had no clue until I saw this I would definitely definitely recommend you go and give it a watch I can't believe that you even said yourself it shows it shows the power of them that every single person that you have spoken to that is a terrorist attack survivor 
has been approached in some way it's, it's unbelievable yeah i mean and it's in many ways i think you know this is a sort of perfect example actually going back to what we we're talking about before of why there is a role to be played by actually having more survivors feel able to to get out there and talk about what they've experienced because this is just one of of yeah. many many uh-huh. issues that people who you know and i certainly was guilty of it before i was in the attack people who have never experienced terrorism fortunately mm-hmm. would just not know about um, mm-hmm. and and it's only through actually talking about this trying to get those changes through that we can really sort of rectify the situation and again god help us you know you would hope that no one else has to experience what we have but we actually both know in reality that there are going to be future attacks so it's about trying to get that support in place and to change these issues before they're needed in future rather than sort of being on the back foot like we are now. I guess you're also, and this sort of relates to what you said about, you know, your mum being contacted too. You're sort of thrust in, you're thrust into sort of the public eye as well. You know, you were saying it was you and a group of your uni friends, you know, just going about your day. I mean, I can imagine, you know, the other people that were there that day as well. You had tourists, you had people commuting to work, just, you know, everyday, ordinary, normal people going about your everyday life. You're thrust into the public in such a way that I guess people, you know, you've got the nastiness that you're dealing with, with these disaster trolls that we were speaking about. But I guess it, did you feel to a certain extent that there was sort of intrusion in your life, even if it was just from sort of like, public and press interest when you were sort of trying to rehabilitate because you you know your face was everywhere your name was everywhere I'm assuming your family was contacted as well it must have been a lot yeah so I mean just on the first point with what you were mentioning because it reminded me really just to make note of the fact that actually this is everyone just going about their regular life we had over 20 nationalities um affected amongst the victims in the Westminster attack of those that died you know we we had um uh, a man who was celebrating his wedding anniversary um, with his wife. Uh, we had a retired window cleaner, um, a lady on her way to pick up her kids from school, a woman a woman from Romania on holiday with a boyfriend. And then, of course, we had you know, a police officer on duty as well. So this is a real cross-section of not just society, but of the world. On that second point about intrusion, it's a massive issue. And it's certainly something that, again, is endemic, actually, at this point. I mean, I, I had, a, as I've mentioned earlier, actually, Within about an hour of the attack happening, my name was put out there. I don't, I don't know how to this day. I don't know, you know, how they identified me. I'd certainly not, you know, done any media or anything before then because I just, you know, I wasn't that sort of person. I wasn't on a platform, obviously. To this day, I don't know how they identified me, but my name was out there within about an hour or two of the attack happening. And then naturally, photos of me were, were taken. I mean, you got to remember this is. This is Westminster. This is one of the most photographed yeah. areas probably in the world. And not just by tourists and, and bystanders, but by journalists as well, wanting to interview people and, and stuff like that. So there were very professional photos taken almost immediately afterwards, you know, very well sort of zoomed in and focused of me both walking after the after the card hit me and sort of in the aftermath I told you about, but also of me being loaded onto a stretcher and popped in the back of an ambulance. Now, these photos made it around, as you can imagine, onto newspapers and stuff. I think what disappointed me the most, actually, was the fact that certain journalists sent those photos directly to my mum and to other members of my family um, within hours of the attack happening, asking if I was alive or if I was dead, and then relentlessly ringing them, knocking at the door, pretty much parking a van outside our house for like a week or two afterwards. And I wasn't even there for eight days afterwards because I was still in the bloody hospital bed. 
So why do you need to be outside my house where my little sister is, where my mum and my dad is? It just, you know, like, I, I don't even know how to put it into words without getting angry, but it. it's just not yeah. right. And I think yeah. so many other ethical ways to get the information you need that don't require constant harassment. And, and um, part of me thinks that, you know, that harassment is part of what is, you know, asked for here is that they want a reaction and therefore can then print a sort of reaction, something that's said perhaps in anger or or in you know, emotion um, that makes a good headline. And, and I just felt that it was so wrong because, you know, again, I've never had any media training. I certainly never had any media training at the time of the attack happening. Within a split second, all of a sudden, everybody wants a comment from you. Everybody wants a quote. And actually, you know, everyone's looking at that quote as well. It's not just something that is just going to go onto a forum or something and, and disappear. Right after an attack is when people want to know what happened. And they want to know your opinion and everything, and, and they want to know who is involved in the attack. Um, so you're put on this massive international platform. Quite frankly, I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> I didn't, you know, at that point, I hadn't, it's, and I've said this since then, the only reason I really started speaking out was A, to correct the things that they reported wrongly, because in that rush to get information out there, Many of them misreported my injuries, which, of course, just fed directly into these trolls because they thought, well, you know, one minute he's saying he's got this injury, one minute he's saying he's got this injury. But the reality is I'd never said anything to these newspapers and they were just reporting random stuff. So one of the issues, you know, one of the only reasons I went out there initially to sort of speak to journalists voluntarily was to correct the record. And the second one was to raise awareness of sort of the 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 issues we'd faced with support and things like that. And obviously, you know, that wasn't something that I could speak about and wasn't something that I knew about immediately after the attack. Come and ask me for a quote a day or two after the attack. I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> I worry about, you know, like what would I have said? Because I would have felt like I had to say something. And I think yeah. that that rush to get information out quite damaging actually because you know it has an impact on sort of what we read in the newspapers and stuff i just think that the intrusion we received was completely unacceptable continuing the conversation on proverbs after this short break does monday at the office feel like a storm not with microsoft copilot that feeling when copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly it's sunny again when copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act that sun's shining on a beach and when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. These are just the things that, you know, we in the newspapers, on social media, these are the things that we don't speak about. And these are the issues that we we don't think that victims face. You know, it's, it is all about getting that headline. It's all about, you know, getting that story and getting it now. And, you know, we're, we're seeing this. This is becoming, you know, 
an increasing problem with social media. I mean, the amount of videos that I see on my For You page of, you know, bystanders that have filmed a car accident or, you know, it's, it's so horrific. And yeah, that breach of privacy at one of the most vulnerable times must be so difficult to deal with. And I also think as well, it's everyone processes trauma very, very differently. You know, some people won't, will never want to remember you know that day again they'll try and erase it from their memory so to have photos of yourself in that state as well and then to be constantly asked questions must be awful I know for you you know you educated yourself and you you ended up in in this line of work and and that's how you sort of process what went on but for some people that's just not the case it's it is it is it is wild. I want to talk about some of the work that you now do day to day. I know that you are the national chair of the Counterterrorism Police Advisory Group. <laughs> Quite a mouthful, isn't it? Quite a mouthful. Is there an abbreviation for that, Travis? Uh, just call it the CT Yag. That's probably. No, easiest. I mean, I'm, ha- I'm happy to go with no, that. No, 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 no that is yeah, yeah. Just, just, just. Just say uh, chair of the CTA. That makes things easier. <laughs> I'm I'm happy to say it all because it's very very important. Um, but what <laughs> does your work entail? I'm I am intrigued. Sure. So I mean, I I often have you know I'm often juggling many different hats. But as you've mentioned, one of the main roles I'm involved with at the moment is chairing the police's youth advisory group, and this is a network of about 100, just over 100 actually, young people advising the police up and down the country, counter-terrorism policing that is, specifically on issues of four sort of strands of the the contest strategy, which is our counter-terrorism strategy in the UK. Now, as you might imagine, most of that work comes down to prevent primarily because that's the area that has the most sort of public facing um, and, and is open to the most criticism. Whereas the other strands, the other sort of P's as they call them, pursue, protect and prepare, uh, we help on where we can, but as you might imagine, prevent ends up being most of the workload. Now, most of that sort of position entails providing sort of, they call it critical advice um, and guidance to the police on um, essentially how they implement that policy and also how that is sort of received by communities, how best to engage communities, and in many ways, assisting in any shape or form with trying to prevent future attacks, really. I mean, that's the goal for me, certainly, at the end of the day. And I know that a lot of this work that goes on behind the scenes can feel quite detached from that, but that is what we're all working towards at the end of the day, and certainly that's why I'm involved. So as you said, I, I do a lot of work with the police at the moment, certainly, as I say, from the sort of youth and also from survivors' perspective, because I feel that there's a lot of benefit that can be gained from actually having those voices in the room. And I think that often, you know, understandably, perhaps the police, you know, very sort of busy, a lot on their plates, but actually... um, when it comes to survivors, I think that's a quite literally an untapped resource because these people, in many ways, the majority of victims I've spoken to want to do something. They want to not necessarily have a career in this area, but they want to at least share their story and, and perhaps feel as though they've done something about it. I think it's a very human reaction, actually, to to sort of experience something so horrific and, and you know, not want to carry on as if it didn't happen. Those voices aren't necessarily always um, easily accessible. Because, you know, this is a, a small club, fortunately, of survivors. It's not as small as I would hope and, and certainly hope it stays this small in future. You won't want it to grow. Um, but at the same time, often, you know, we all know each other. But to those outside that sort of bubble, it may seem that there are only a few survivors out there, only those who are outspoken, only those willing to do media, for example. And so connecting those survivors with the police, with other people working in counterterrorism and giving them an outlet for that passion 
to do something about it, I find is just really, really important. And I also do a lot of other work as well. I mean, just uh, just recently been helping out with the National Emergencies Trust. This is a charity um, that I'm very passionate about. They formed in November 2019, and essentially they uh, are going to collate all the sort of fundraising, public fundraising that happens after a major emergency whether that's terrorism, which is, of course, the angle that I come up from, or, say, flooding, or, as we had most recently, COVID. And they were sort of thrown into the deep end. They launched in November 2019, and within a couple of months, they were dealing with COVID appeal, which raised yeah. millions of pounds for charities and individuals up and down the country to help them get through the crisis. Um, that's something that I feel quite passionate about, because less so with Westminster, but certainly with Manchester, because there was so much money raised after that attack happened there. Some of it did sadly go into the hands of fraudsters. Um, and even when it didn't, it was perhaps, you know, sort of difficult to get that to those who needed it most because it was going through all these different pages and all these different sort of fundraising platforms. So to have the National Emergency Trust in place means that it can collate those and get them to people ASAP, which is really important after an incident. Um, so I do a lot of work with them at the moment, advising them and mainly sort of in that capacity. And it's something that I'm really passionate about, actually. And I guess alongside all of that, just to sort of top things off as if I wasn't busy enough already, <laughs> uh, I do quite a few talks in schools and things like that. And again, it seems very basic, but I feel very passionate about it because I think that if we're going to influence anyone with these stories, it has to be yeah. done. And, and I do think that these stories have a bit of shock factor especially yeah. in showing that it can be any one of us it's not just someone for example who one of the beliefs you know that i often stumble into up north where i'm from is that this is just a big city issue this is just something that affects people in cities like london and maybe manchester and showing that you know i as someone who came from quite a small town you know rural lancashire can be affected by terrorism as well as other people i think is really important to sort of dispel a lot of those myths actually yeah it's really really inspiring stuff and i just i think the fact that you have been able to use this horrific experience that you went through to you know educate and help and fight back i just i really really commend you for it i think it's so respectable how can we help travis is there anything that we can do you know as members of the public to help you to fight back or to help support other survivors and victims sure well it's a big question i mean Right off the bat, when you talk about supporting victims, I think actually just, just recognising that there are more victims out there than we think. You know, there are yeah. a hell of a lot of people. I was chatting with someone a couple of days ago, just a dinner lady at a, a university, and she was telling me that she was in the, the Manchester bomb back in, I believe it was the 90s. And again, that's someone who, for all intents and purposes, you know, was running for their life, carried on running, got home, got on and, and cracked on as if nothing had happened, you know? And, and there are so many people out there who with Westminster, with Manchester, with every other attack, witness it, maybe are, are very sort of, you know, mildly injured and, and go home and then get treated later. And they were never included on the official list, you know, and just being sort of educated on these issues, not just with the sort of victim stuff, but actually on, on knowing what to do if you think that someone's being radicalised. That is so important. Yeah. and certainly something that I knew nothing about for the attack. I think it's it's a lot of our work, really, and this is something I'd definitely sort of drive home for your, you know, your listeners, is just realizing that this can happen to you, just as any one of us can be a victim of terrorism. Any one of us can actually be radicalized as well, and so can any one of our our family, our friends, our community. And being on the lookout for those sort of warning signs of someone being withdrawn, being a bit more extreme or violent in their views, 
and then doing something about it, you know, we would all hope that if we can get someone the support they need as early as possible in that sort of radicalization journey, then we can bring them back from the brink and, and no one even has to ever know that they were at risk of that. And not yeah. just have we then saved their life, but we've saved countless lives of the people they could have hurt had they gone on to become a terrorist. So actually just sort of taking the time to educate yourself and be aware of these issues is massively important but i think underpinning all this really just to sort of bring things to a close i think to be honest with you um you know we all have our experiences and and you know of course mine is with terrorism but in many ways people have experiences of, of other sorts of crimes of all manner of things and i think just actually having the courage to go out there and, and talk about this to 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 get on a platform wherever people have you i always joke that you know I'll talk to anyone about these issues, about radicalization, extremism. I might not have all the answers, but I'll have a conversation with you and, yeah. and I'll talk to anyone who will have me. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and certainly when it comes to politicians and things, talk to them long enough to annoy them into doing something about it. Um, and I think that actually just recognizing the real sort of power that we all have uh, in that voice and trying to sort of, you know, just, just do what we can to make things better, not to be worthwhile. Uh, so that's been my sort of, I guess my finishing message for you. <laughs> and that is a wonderful way to finish. And we're very <laughs> glad that you spoke to us as well, Travis. Thank you so much for being here and also for just shedding a light on some of the different issues that, you know, don't get spoken about and we and we don't think about, you know, as, as I guess, bystanders um, and as members of the public. So, yeah, I really, really appreciate you. And I really, really enjoyed talking to you on this episode as well. Well, it's a pleasure to be on, Daisy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And that concludes this episode of Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. That is me. I hope you enjoyed it. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and I will see you soon. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.